Cheerio, ladies and chaps, and welcome to a very special episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. Today, we're bringing you our origin story, of sorts, with a short round review of my favorite film of all time, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. So let's not drag our feet, folks. Let's get right away to Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell's 1943 masterpiece. Message from HQ. War starts at midnight. You have your orders? Tell them in. Oh, and tell them to make it like the real thing. What do you mean by the real thing, Spud? Well, obviously, our loss is divided by 10 and the enemy is multiplied by 20. Yes, sir. That's all for now. Sir. Anything for me, sir? No, no, nothing else. War starts at midnight. We know. They know. We attack. They counterattack. Like the real thing, my Aunt Fanny. Like the real thing. Like the real thing. Sergeant Hawkins, six and commanders. So war starts at midnight, does it? Sir? We attack at six. Take all the Tommy guns and four, no, three trucks. Section leaders with Tommy guns, arm the men with bombs, rifles, beards. Tommy. Sir? From your section, Rice, Unsworth. The two Yes, the two owns. Now be it Toots and Cochran. Not Cochran, sir. All right, I'll leave it to you. Stuffy, who are the biggest toughs in your lot? Bill Wall, Wimpy, Mattapan, and yes. Popeye. Right. Yours, Robin? Frank, Skeet, Dougie Stewart, sir. Chappy, Geordie, sir. Pasty, Porky Sims, and Pat Sullivan, sir. Die Evans, sir. Oh, Die Evans, we must have him, Luke, you. All right, get going. Excuse me, sir. Yeah? Did you say that we attacked before war is declared? Yes, like Pearl Harbor. I'll get going. Oh, by the way, there's just one stop at the book. I got a date there with Mata Hari. Careless talk? Yeah. Now, Scram. The work of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger probably lies somewhere right between popular culture and cult status. Though many cinephiles may not know the duo by name, there's a good chance they are familiar with at least something Pal and Pressburger produced under that memorable moniker The Archers. Films like The Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, and A Matter of Life and Death. But for my money, their greatest collaboration is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. It may be lesser known by American audiences, but when you see it for the first time, Blimp instantly feels like a seminal classic. A vibrant script captured in glorious technicolor with a host of characters guiding the audience through 40 years, two world wars, and one epic friendship. The picture is a case study of cinema at its most elemental, from writing and directing to acting, editing, and cinematography. It's all executed with absolute precision. Yet somehow, Blimp still remains on the fringes of popularity and notoriety. Not exactly obscure, but the type of film you might feel like you've discovered. Still, it certainly has its big fans in the world of cinema. Directors like Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, and Wes Anderson have all cited it as an influence on their work. And one of history's greatest masters of mise-en-scene, Jean-Pierre Melville, even went as far as calling it one of the best films in the world. And of course, my esteemed co-host, Mr. Hunter Cates, once said of Colonel Blimp. I think it was the last time I was, hmm, excitedly surprised by a movie. So Hunter, I'm curious. What exactly is it about Colonel Blimp that surprised and excited you? Well, first of all, Chris, thank you for lumping my perspective in with uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, Martin Scorsese at all. I really think that that's appropriate because uh-huh. my opinion on film is comparable to theirs. But the best way to describe Colonel Blimp, whether you've seen it or not, is a British citizen cane. Not just in the subject matter, but in the execution. This is a film that has a very modern approach. There's basically no plot. It's almost all character study, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a modern, almost 70s-esque way of making a film. However, it still maintains the sentimentality and warmth and happiness of a 1940s picture, much like Citizen Kane. However, at the same time, this is a very British picture. And by that, I mean it's where a Citizen Kane 
examined a kind of dark William Randolph Hearst businessman. This is examining an old gentleman warrior like Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. So, wh- well, and, wh- and also just a a European military like aspect that that exactly America doesn't really never had that. Yeah, exactly. Even though we had, even though we had Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane, you know, him hanging out with Hitler and some old stills and things like that. That's a very isolated picture because he is an isolated character. This is a film of the world, and this mm-hmm. is a character of the world. And so, also like Citizen Kane, I don't think Palin Pressburger was young. They weren't as young as Orson Welles, but at the same time, this film has the the vibrancy of editing and mise-en-scene, mm-hmm. framing shots, blocking actors that Citizen Kane had. It seemed like they were really having fun making this and wanting to stretch boundaries. Yeah. I mean, every time I recommend this movie to, to people, there's there's two things that are always the holdup. One, they say, oh, well, it's a movie from the early 40s. Like, I don't like old movies. That that Actually, that statement alone should get a smack, but <laughs> continue. But there is still that bias there, though. The second thing is the length. You know, it's nearly three hours long. This movie moves at such an amazing pace that, like, Every time I I sit through it, I you know it feels like it's just melted away. Um, okay, our first disagreement. I think that up until the up until he's at the restaurant, it, it I was actually finding it a little hard to follow. Once okay. it hits the duel in that moment, that's whenever it goes off at the pace for me. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's that's not necessarily unfair. I mean, it. Uh, I think the setup of this movie the the feels kind of like especially upon first viewing because there are so many things in the first i don't know 30 minutes that only on repeat viewings i really gather everything that's going on right um and and in that sense it kind of reminds me of a movie like brick um that is a very odd comparison perhaps but brick's one of those movies the first time i saw it probably the first hour I wasn't entirely sure what was going on because it's uh, just throws you into this world. I mean, the characters are speaking very quickly and very like they're they don't ever even introduce a lot of times the characters they're talking about. So it's just this guy's talking about this guy and let's move. Um, Not and, a lot of exposition, though. So, no. Yeah, and and so that's more like what I what I mean by the pace. But you're right; it is it is a little bit alienating in that opening. But I think that's also intentional in they they don't give you every little piece to latch on to as as it moves forward it just it keeps moving at this at this brisk like and i mean that's pretty obvious in a lot of the things that they leave out i mean they leave out pretty important moments that would definitely be in other absolutely so that would be my first warning you might say to our listeners is the first 30 minutes you're going to probably be lost if, if you've never seen this picture before but once you get about 30 minutes in it it's absolutely delightful. It goes very quickly. With with that, I will say probably my favorite moment in cinematic history happens at about the 15-minute mark in this movie. All right. Well, before we get to just the moments itself, you said that this is your favorite film of all time. Yeah. One, did that happen after first viewing? And two, is that unequivocal? Or do you think that there's a close second? Um, one, it was – I think first viewing, I, I was – just blown away by it. I wouldn't say like after the first viewing that it was my favorite, but it was like it immediately shot up to like probably top 10. It was just like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that because it feels in so much of the, the cinematography, the editing, these things, it feels like a very modern movie. And so I was amazed that in 1943, in the middle of the war, um, this sort of movie was even was a allowed to be made and be, uh, you know, people were putting that sort of, 
effort into filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the the staging and the 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 camera work is something you would see from much later, but yet it looks like Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. or The Adventures of Robin Hood. But better, you know, I think of something like Adventures of Robin Hood is a good example. I love that movie, but it feels like a movie from the time. It feels you know, staged. Yeah, the the action is played out in these wide shots and. And uh, the color, like, while it's vibrant, like, the color here just feels, it feels rich and it feels cinematic in a, like, more colorful than actual real life color um, sort of way. They, they're hard to describe, but uh, to to your other question about is there anything even close, I mean, y- you know me, I, I think our listeners probably know about me at this point to the, the point that Wes Anderson is probably my favorite filmmaker of all time. No, like... It's no surprise now in retrospect that this is one of Wes Anderson's favorite films. It's his favorite Palin Pressburger film. I mean, his last film that that came out, The Grand Budapest Hotel, is in many ways a love letter to Palin Pressburger movies. And in particular, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. There's several things in the palette, in the uh, the actual sets, the scenes um, that, that kind of harkens back. There's even a moment where uh, probably three quarters of the way through, somebody says the war began at midnight, um, which, you know, you heard yeah. in the clip in, in the clip there. Uh, obviously, how many let me ask you this. How many times do you think they say war starts at midnight within this movie? You know, it's one of those things I wanted to talk to you about this because I saw the picture before we even started, you know, the idea of this podcast. And then we started the podcast. And then this is the second time I've seen it. It was almost it took me out of it and it's not the film's fault. It's just, you know, it took me out of it hearing so many times. Cause it's like, Oh my God, they're talking about our show. <laughs> yeah. It's well. And, and when, when we, you know, first started discussing making a podcast, this is going to get a little inside baseball episode as, as it should. Well, and I, I have quite a bit to say about that. Um, but when we started talking about like doing a, a podcast, it, it initially started as like, we joked around, we would have these discussions at work, uh, before work and act like we were, having a podcast because we would inevitably like I would come into your office to discuss a thing and then it would be 30 minutes later and we hadn't we had addressed everything in the world but but the topic. that thing so yeah and Chris and, and I are very strange people if you didn't gather already folks but it was very much like listening to a podcast we're like oh and today on the podca- podcast we're going to talk about x but first every rabbit trail in the exactly, world exactly yeah and then it would ultimately be like well I got to get back to work okay let me just say the two things that I w- really yeah. wanted to say when I came in here um, and then we got, you know, got to talking about like, well, we kind of, we could do it. You know, we, we have the software. It's one and- of those things, the way I remember, I don't even remember it being that tepid is I remember, I think I, you and I were still working at the same place, maybe, or no, maybe we were just having lunch. But well, anyway. it was, it was when you had, so you, we worked in the same, the same office, you left to a new, uh, a new place. And then we started doing lunches and mm-hmm. calling those our podcasts. And yeah. I was like. We we probably could. The, the, way, the way I remember it is you and I were talking and I, and, I, and I said, do you want to start a podcast? And I don't even think I finished the sentence before you said yes. So it kind of felt like uh, like you're asking somebody out or something and they <laughs> want you to ask them out. But you're nervous, too. So you're like, yeah. hey, do you want to start a podcast? Yes. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> but do you remember the the discussion about what should we call it was a pretty short one, too. Yeah, I, I think the long and the short of it is just you. This made this was a really cool name, and you had the URL yeah, for other that's, reasons. That's what it yeah. was. Well, I I literally like 
something that I like to do in my spare time is just check and see if URLs, interesting URLs are taken. And I couldn't believe it's, this wasn't it taken. It turned out pretty profitable actually so, uh, for you. <laughs> so I grabbed this one just not knowing what I was going to do with it. And I had loaned it to a friend for about a year and he kind of stopped using it for its purposes. So I uh, gave him an ultimatum and kind of stole it back. Uh, thank you very much for, for the URL mark, our, our listener from last episode, actually. Um, and uh, there, there it was. But um, I, I want to go to rewind a little bit. I want to go back to your comment about comparing it to, to Citizen Kane, because uh, I, I listened to about half of the commentary. There was back in the like early to mid 80s, I believe as Criterion actually did recorded a commentary with uh, Martin Scorsese and the director, Michael Powell, um, for I, I guess the laser disc of it. And Martin Scorsese, it's and it's I will say it's not. It's not up to snuff with today's commentary tracks per se. Like it's, it's a very, like they just sort of here and there comment on, on stuff. So it's, they didn't know how to do a commentary. It, yeah. It's not like listening to a David Fincher commentary where you're going to get a whole, whole lot of insight, but there are, there and are shitting nuggets. on Ben Affleck. There's none of that. <laughs> there, there are some nuggets here and there. And one of the things that I found really interesting is Scorsese. And this is, you know, this is 80s Scorsese, but um, he mentions that I think I, I want to say it's Andrew Saris, but now I'm thinking that's absolutely wrong. A film critic will say a film critic because I can't remember off the top of my head uh, who didn't really like his films much. He uh, was talking to him about um, about maybe Pal and Pressburg or maybe this film in particular. And he said, you know, as I get older, I find that I need to watch Citizen Kane less, but uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp more the or critic or Martin Scorsese. The, the critic. Okay. I, I found that really interesting. I, th- I think it totally makes sense though, because at its core, this story is about, um, you know, a relationship between a young soldier and an old soldier. And the fact that the young always become old. And so you, you know, there is an evolution in the character. Like you actually see the young spry character become the, old, you know, curmudgeon-y the sort of curmudgeon Well, you see the curmudgeon become the spry, become the curmudgeon yeah, again. Yeah. But and that's, and that's part of the brilliance of it. The fact that we start with him at the, you know, towards the end of his life and his career. And to make the Citizen Kane comparison again is Citizen Kane is a movie about growing old made by a young person, whereas Pal and Pressburger's uh, Blimp is more about adults looking back on youth. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the different perspectives. And it's a very American perspective in Citizen Kane versus a very, very British perspective in blimp yeah and yeah and so it's kind of just where are you coming from and so that's an interesting quote about having to see citizen kane less and blimp more is citizen kane is more of a young man's movie whereas blimp is more about more from the perspective of growing old and looking mm-hmm. back so there's a melancholy to it which i think is interesting it's sentimental not treacle but it's it's sentimental it's a little bit melancholy and so the first time i saw it I was really taken aback by the loneliness of this character mm. and how he was always searching for the Deborah Carr character. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's put on our famous feminist goggles real quick. Oh man, this I think this is an amazing like feminist film from particularly from the time. Like that her three sorry to cut you off. No, her, no, no. But the, these three characters that she plays, particularly Edith and Charlie, the first and the last, are wonderful. Like well, let's let's play devil's advocate here. Do you think that it's it's a negative thing that it's the three main female characters are all played by the same person? No, I I don't think so. I mean, I think she she plays three different characters. You know, she's not um she's not playing the same character three times. Mm-hmm. You know, I the first time I saw it, I didn't even think about it until it gets it wraps around 
to the end again, you know, the end that we began with. And then I kind of finally put it all together that, oh, she, that's the same girl from all of them. Just sort of like Roger Libsey, who plays Clive Candy, um, the brilliance in showing him old first is that you almost don't believe that the young man that comes out of that pool is the same actor. The only like identifying thing is that voice. No one could fake that voice, you know? And, and so uh, you have these two characters who are playing in a sense, playing multiple roles as, as they go through. And there's something interesting that Thelma Schumacher, who was actually Michael Powell's uh, wife uh, pointed out in the uh, bonus features for on the criterion disc. Um, and she pointed out that I think it's in world war one when the, uh, when the bombing stops, uh, Murdoch who becomes sort of, uh, candy's, uh, what would you say? His, 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 his manservant. Yeah. His, I, I was trying to avoid that, but yeah, I guess he's that's, just a manservant. that's yeah. about, that's about right. Um, becomes his manservant. He, Says So this is after basically he's seen the second Deborah Carr for the first time. And he's talking about how he has to he has to see her. He has to find her. Four pages of confessions not worth Kretschmer's shoulder. There can't be two of them with a name like that, eh, Murdoch? No, sir. You don't know what on earth I'm talking about. No, sir. Haven't I told you about the time I was in Berlin in 1902? When he grew your moustache, sir. And yet you can't remember the name Kretschmer Schuldorf. You know, you ought to bequeath that brain of yours to Guy's Hospital. Oh, I remember now, sir. He married the girl. Yes, he married the girl. Last night, Murdoch, I saw a girl, a nurse, straight from England. I've never seen a more striking resemblance. She must have been a very common type of girl, sir. The young lady in Berlin, I mean. She was a most uncommon. What the devil do you mean, Murdoch? Well, sir, there was that girl and Philip. You remember, he went nine times. And there was that girl and the group out of the bystander. We lost it in the big push, didn't we? And then there's a dispatch rider coming, sir. General Candy. And, and so with that, he's, you know, Murdoch is actually pointing out that it's not just these three women that he encounters over the course of his life. There have been many others that we don't even see that he's, you know, he is envisioning Edith in all of these women throughout his lifetime. These are just the three that were shown. And maybe like it, it brings something interesting in that do Charlie and I forget his wife's name. We, we've been talking a lot about metaphysical lately uh, with, with the last episode. And I guess I'll bring it like, there is a question as to how much does she actually look like Edith? And that's, that's interesting because it could be metaphysical because the only other time someone else recognizes Deborah Carr is Teo mm-hmm. recognizing the third person, but because the third person looks like his wife, who was the first person. So he's had to, he's had a loss just like uh, Clive Candy had at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Clive even, he's very excited to show Teo a portrait of his wife, the second uh, of the three and Teo's response is basically, well, yeah, I guess she kind of looks like Edith, but you forget that I saw her 31 years later mm-hmm. than you did. And so she, you know, to me, she's not just who she was captured in that, that memory of that month that we spent together playing cards and drinking Kirchwater. Exactly. And that, that moment in, in itself, the first time I saw it in this, and actually the second time, it really gives me the feels, so to speak. We talked mm-hmm. about Terrence Malick in our last episode and the thing about Terrence Malick pictures is they really put you in your place. And this did the same, is any picture that covers a long, expanse of time, even if it's a flawed movie like Interstellar, it just really gets you thinking. Mm-hmm. And so Blimp, 
you watch it and you just you do realize watching this character's life unfold over the course of two and a half hours just how fragile life is and then also at the same time how every single moment it it may just be a moment now but it's going to be potentially something you regret or something you're grateful for later on Mm -hmm. and so there's a bit there's a strain of regret going through this which like i said it's melancholy but at the same time by the end it becomes joyful because he's reached the end of his life he has much to be proud of he made mistakes we saw those mistakes he regrets them but it, it just by painting this full picture of the man, it's it's really touching in that regard. And, you know, you mentioned melancholy, but it does it really does end on a on an upbeat, on an optimistic note of him. You know, he's been defeated. He's been the the Germans have invaded uh, the home guard in, in this little test run. And what does he do? You know, they're they're marching the streets with a band. And what does he do? He stands and salutes them. And and he he mentions that you know Spud came in and he he did this thing that uh, I wasn't too you know happy with but you know I think I'm going to invite him out to uh, to dinner with me and I hope he accepts exactly I, this is, again this is a very 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 British picture it's it's <laughs> it's got a strain of melancholy but it's also joyous and proud and has a lot of honor um, so we talked a little bit about some of the things that they neglected to show or not neglected to show they purposely did not show so let's talk about the biggie the duel scene. Um, this is one of the most famous, or at least uh, admired, mm-hmm. scenes in movie history. In a nutshell, they're getting ready to show this duel that they built up to, and then they just pan out and then leave the duel. Well, and it's it's so beautifully set up too, because it's it's almost like a Michael Mann moment of showing you the who and what and why of everything. Like there is a, uh, they spend so much time on the etiquette of it and the rules and and everything leading up to it. And it's it's just sort of brilliant. I mean, it's the first I, it's the first of many times when uh, they basically say, OK, now we're going to fast forward through time or we're going to skip over the thing that naturally is going to happen instead of showing instead of building up to that moment and, and paying off with it. We're, we're going to skip over it because we got more we've got more to to say and do and show. And I I love that. I mean, I love because it's what, like maybe three, four five minutes of the setup when they're in that gymnasium mm-hmm. in Berlin and they're going over, you know, the aristocrat who's seeing overseeing the duel. He says, well, you need to remove your sleeve. Do you want to roll it up or cut it off? And he says, I, I guess I'll cut it off. That's good. Like that it's, that's something that you don't really need, but it actually becomes in the way that it's played out the, the great purpose of it. Exactly. It's, it's a very bouncy and fun moment, but actually the skipping that I enjoyed even more than the duel was the hunting. Mm-hmm. And so if you've seen this, the way it works, folks, is after he loses the first girl to another man who he didn't realize he loved, the first ever car, he goes hunting, kills a bunch of animals. And what they do is they just do a bunch of jump cuts showing the heads gather on the wall. And then it happens again whenever his wife passes away. Mm-hmm. And then we have... So there's actually probably a statement about masculinity in crisis mm-hmm. by doing it that way. You know, in, in the commentary, Michael Powell actually comments that uh, he says, I, I could have done this better, but I, I don't know how I would have. Max Ophels, if he had this scene, he would have made it funnier, um, which I thought, I thought was interesting because I, I think it's a scene that works really well. It's a Scorsese, when talking about it, mentioned that it's the type of thing that you you may have seen in cartoons at the time, like that that real quick uh, montage. that's like it is really in your face telling you that that we're cutting and passing time, but it's so elegant and brilliantly pieced together well and and it takes for granted that the audience is going to put 
two and two together and understand how this is happening. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I really I didn't notice this so much the first time that it's happening only as a consequence of him losing a woman mm-hmm. in his life. Mm-hmm. I, I want to jump back to the duel real quick. We don't we don't need to dwell on it too much. But See, I, I was trying to do the duel. We uh-huh. set up the duel and then we just pan out and uh-huh. don't talk about it. There, I, there's just one thing that I, I love that I, I only caught on maybe the third or fourth time that I saw it and that's that, or, or realized it really felt it. And that's, they set it up so that you think that Clive is going to lose this duel. Like basically he, he plays it as if like, Oh, which end do I, do I hold? And what is, Oh, this yeah, is whenever what feels he's young, like. He's the ultimate frat boy. And this feels like the moment whenever he's going to get it. But they, so he, he goes through this whole thing. Like he doesn't even put the rosin on his shoes, all of these like asking questions, not, you know, and, and tail Kretschmar shirt off comes in and he seems like, you know, he's doing his little routine and getting limber and everything. It's like, Oh, he's going to, he's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. This is, this is not, this is going to be an international incident. And then we, we boom out. And then it goes into a carriage with Deborah Carr and Babyface. I say, I hope our chap doesn't get killed. It'll create an awful stink if he does. Mr. Fitzroy, I think you're the most odious man I've ever met. And if anything does happen to him, I'll, I'll blow up your embassy. I say. Are you a suffragette, Miss Hunter? Never mind, but if anything does happen to Mr. Candy, oh, I shall... mean, Shuggy, I was talking about the German fella. <laughs> Nothing could possibly ever happen to Shuggy. He won the fencing shield at school two years running. Do you know that man has the most... Oh, look! At that very moment, you see an ambulance coming out and you realize the duel's over. And, but there's this moment of relief where you're like, okay, well, it's probably not him. Like that, that's handled so well. Like instead of, instead of showing you the action of what happens, and then it also builds up suspense for what did exactly happen. Exactly. It's just throughout the entire picture, just that economy of storytelling mm-hmm. is really admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this is a movie that even though we, we, it, it's kind of remembered and fondly thought of because of Pound Pressburger what they did it's really an actor's picture and so we've already talked a little bit about the remarkability of what deborah carr did only 20 years old yeah, when she did yeah. this i think i think 19 actually it could have been 20 but yeah I 1920 she's just a very very young woman and you might if you're an, a classic movie fan you've probably seen her in in some uh pictures but this was before she did for instance an affair to remember with carrie grant this was mm-hmm. about 10 years before that and so it's interesting to see this person you saw as a hollywood starlet or the canaan eye she's in the canaan eye this person you saw as a hollywood starlet as a very young actress and extremely gifted and versatile yeah i mean she holds she totally holds her own as those as we said three independent characters and her co-stars never really reached the same level of fame they never came to hollywood as she did right but, i uh, mean and livesey i mean Livesey's one of those. He has such a distinct voice. I think that was originally Lawrence Olivier was supposed to play. That. Well, I, let's let's we'll, we'll get to that here okay. in a second because okay. I want I want to dwell on that a little bit. But his uh, you mentioned the lifelong friendship. The person he fought the duel with was a German officer by the name of Teo, who was played by Anton Wintrup, I believe. Wahlberg. Wahlberg, excuse yeah. me. Uh, let's talk about him that performance a okay. little bit. Um, I I love that performance. I mean, and it's. I think it may be the first thing that I'd seen Walbrook in, um, but I've, I've seen him in a lot since. I mean, actually, you know what? No, The Red Shoes is the first thing that I saw him in, another Pal Pressburger mm-hmm. movie. Um, he was in uh, one or two uh, Max Ophel's movies to bring him up again. Um, you know, I, he's a he's a great little European. I think he's from Vienna um, actor. And uh, I, I love him. I love that bromance here between between clive and teo mm-hmm. yeah it's it's once again it's just it's very touching it's interesting and maybe this is where a feminist could maybe get upset with this picture is 
the, the same woman plays three different characters, but the one consistent relationship is the bromance. And again, that's that's a feminist argument that, you know, if, if you feel that way, go ahead and it, email us and let us know what you think. Is it though? I mean, I I guess I fail to see like what the, the problem is in, in that though. I mean, because there is a, there's a tenderness to the relationship both between uh, Teo and Edith, his mm-hmm. wife, and between Candy and his wife, you know, those, those are other things, but it's a, ultimately they're lost. Both of them are lost. Mm-hmm. The thing that endures is these two men who, you know, are lonely, have one has lost his country and his wife. The other one is, has lost his life and his career, his career as a military man. And so they're kind of not in the same place, but they are in the same place and they can relate to each other. Once again, they could relate to each other when they were young for one reason, they can relate to each other once again, when they're old for completely different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I agree with you. It's just, I can, I can see, I don't know what the argument would be, but I can see people perhaps saying that the fact that there's just three main women characters all played by the same person that it, it it's almost like this is all entirely the epitome of the male gaze you know what i mean like we talked about in maybe, episodes past maybe so but i mean look at okay look at edith for example i mean she goes toe-to-toe with clive in every meeting that they have you see my family were opposed to my coming to Bradley. they said that the best place for a young girl is home quite so why what do you mean, why? How do you know what is the best place for a young girl? Are you a girl? I said Have you any daughters? I said You see, while you men have been fighting, we women have been thinking. Think for yourself, Mr. Candy. What careers are there open to a woman? She can get married. I was just yes, going to say. Yes, supposing she doesn't want to get married. She can go and be a governess. But what does a governess know, Mr. Candy? Nothing, I assure you. Then what can she teach the children who are in her charge? Very little except good manners, if she herself has good manners. Good manners are important. Did you learn that in South Africa, Mr. Candy? My brothers told me that good manners cost us Magafontein, Stormberg and Colenso. 6,000 men killed and 20,000 wounded. And two years of war. When with a little common sense and bad manners, there would have been no war at all. In many ways, putting a pin in the balloon of the whole male ego thing, which she feels is undergirding wars and the military complex in general. And then and then you look at Charlie at the uh, at the end, who is Spud's girlfriend. And I mean, when he goes basically to meet up with her, what does she do? She fights him off. They, <laughs> His uh, men think he's dead for a moment. And then she goes off to warn the wizard. Mm-hmm. Like she's, she's a very strong character. I mean, just, I, I love the women in this movie. Well, let's, let's play devil's advocate here just for fun. What if those three characters were played by a different actress? How a, much would that take away? A different actress or, a, or different actresses. Who different actresses to, is. Um, it, I think it would have taken away from the, and here's the thing is Deborah Carr. It works with her. If it was, if it was a thing that they tried to pull off and it didn't work, it would be maybe a different discussion, mm-hmm. um, but it works so well with her. So I think the effect would be less if you had three different actresses, because it, ultimately Candy doesn't realize that he lost the love of, love of his life until she's already gone. Like, he late, didn't realize yeah. that he was in love with her until it's too late. But it's it's also not a story about um, there was only one woman that I was in love with. And that is that. And that's it, it, she's more a catalyst for. Um, his love and infatuation, not a, it's not a perverse, uh, 
Vertigo-esque. Uh, Vertigo, or I was thinking Brian De Palma sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's two ways to read this, and I think the more cynical way to read this is that all women look the same through this character's eyes, which I think is a an inaccurate reading. I think it's more that the moral of this story, among many morals, is that this man, as you just said, truly regrets making this mistake. And so this this idea of this woman who he truly loved follows him through the rest of his life. That's the running theme of melancholy is mm-hmm. missing out on her. Yeah. And this man, we've we talked a little bit about this a second ago, is, of course, the titular Colonel Blimp. Clive Candy, played by Roger Livesley. Well, and technically not even Colonel Blimp. Well, only, we'll get to that in okay. just in a moment. But uh, you mentioned a second ago that he, it was originally supposed to be Lawrence Olivier, but he was actually serving and was unable to be in this picture. He was he was not just unable, but restricted. Uh, uh, Churchill did not like the fact ex- that they well, were Well, okay, exactly, because he was, uh, you know, one of gr- England's great exports was mm-hmm. Lawrence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Olivier starring in Colonel Blimp. What kind of movie is that? Uh, I think less of a movie. It would have been a more, it would have been a more flamboyant performance, which is, I think the most flamboyant thing about Roger Libsey is his accent, which he just can't, you know, he just can't overcome. Um, he has a very distinct voice, but, uh, I feel like Lawrence Olivier, especially in the older, uh, the, the older candy would have really hammed it up a bit more than, than you get with Livesey. I mean, Livesey really like, it's to the point that every time I've watched it with someone else and that's, I I love watching it with someone else for the first time, but every time I do, um, whenever he comes out of of that pool, they, and they sort of start to put it together. Like, is, was that the same guy? The old, Mm -hmm. is this the old guy? Like they're, they're blown away. I mean, and the only real telltale sign is they're in that Turkish bath and there's the, the steam on him and you can kind of see where, uh, the male pattern baldness, you know, the, is clearly, the hair it's around a little the, bit of a makeup. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, still, still fantastic job, both makeup and performance. I would actually disagree with you about Lawrence Livia. Not, I would, I would agree that I wouldn't want that him playing that character, but for different reasons, I don't think he would have hammed it up. I would think that he would be too similar to Teo because, hmm. okay. uh, Anton, that actor is a very, he seems very stage trained, certainly in that performance, very restrained, very clear, very focused and professional. And Lawrence Olivier at that time, look at something like Rebecca, look at Hamlet, which came out a few years later. He actually was more restrained and stage-esque mm-hmm. in his early years. So I almost feel like Clive Candy would have been too similar to Teo and it would yeah, have taken that, away their distinction. That's a that's an interesting comparison. And, you know, there's so much about Clive has to be this youthful, vibrant character uh, when we, you know, go back to the past in 1902, I believe. Well, and I know this is, I've said this a million times, but it's true. I mean, Clive is very British. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He's he's just, whenever he's young, he's youthful. He's got, he's got honor, but he's kind of, I said this saying, he's kind of like a frat boy. You know what I mean? He enjoys having fun, but at the same time, he does believe in tradition. He does believe that there are rules to follow, but he still wants to enjoy himself at the time. And he pals around with uh, Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle. Exactly. I mean, that yeah, that's a, that's a great moment too. Um, so he's not actually Colonel Blimp. The title came from a cartoon that was running mm-hmm. so this might have been one of as you said uh off mic is this might have been one of the first examples of a comic book movie colonel blimp was actually a a character that appeared in british newspapers and then they i guess they just took that moniker and then made a different movie around it yeah basically i mean there are there are some thematic and i i've only i've read more about colonel blimp than i actually have read the colonel blimp Comics and they were, you know, what they were is they were kind of political cartoons of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Colonel Blimp was an analog for uh, Winston Churchill. He, you know, he's this old man with a pot belly uh, who's mostly in a uh, like a 
just a towel. So that's where the, when we're introduced to him, where he's in the Turkish bath, you know, mm-hmm. there's that, uh, that connection there, but that's, that's about it. That in the, the, it, yeah. the belly. So it'd be kind of like if they would either take, you know, we'll go on two different perspectives here, but it would be like if they took either a Doonesbury or B the family circus and were to make this brilliant, satire slash <laughs> slash metaphor about life and aging mm-hmm. you know what i mean take the in but that had nothing to do with their source material besides the name which is kind of astounding to think about yeah it's uh it, and you know the the movie some of the things that i've read about because it's it's a more revered movie in europe and in england than it is in america one of the things that i've i've read is that because nobody knew what colonel blimp was in america the other thing is the america the original american release I don't know if you can believe this. Ninety minutes. Yeah, I, I was. I heard that in Martin Scorsese's introduction on the uh, Blu-ray. Yeah, he, and I don't know how they would even do that. I mean, he he goes into a little more detail on on the commentary. He says the first time he saw it, it was early fifties. He was probably ten. He saw it in black and white, if you could believe that as well, on television, and it was cut down to ninety minutes. They cut out the entire like first fifteen minutes, and it basically the film starts with him coming out of the pool. And then there are several just other moments. Uh, like I think the, the montage of the uh, shooting the animals, I believe he said that was cut out. There's, there's several things that, um, you know, they just condensed it. They made it linear and uh, completely changed the, you know, made it, made it more a three act sort of film. Yeah. I kind of wish that uh, criterion, if they had access to it, would have included it on there just as a case study. That would be, that would be really interesting to see, but I would imagine that that's also probably something that, has deteriorated itself oh, over yeah, time no kidding. to to restore something that's such a, a hack would be, you know, counterintuitive. Exactly. To spend that much time on it. You said a second ago that this picture is more revered in Great Britain than it is in America. Um, this is despite the fact that Winston Churchill at all. Well, actually, I'm not even sure Winston Churchill was all that aware of it. No, he, he was. He so my understanding is that he tried to get it stopped. Like initially he said, we you know, this, this movie cannot be made, get it stopped. And then, um, Scorsese kind of goes yeah, over and not, and not in a too. dictatorial way, just in a, the, the story he told, I believe is that he asked the ministry of information. They said, we really don't want you to make this movie. And if you do, it'll cost you a K. So, yeah. So the Michael Powell version of the story goes a little further than that. And it's Churchill tells the ministry of, uh, information to prevent it from happening. And they say, well, it's not a dictatorship. It's a, uh, it's a democracy, so we can't. Mm-hmm. And so he says, "Well, threaten them with whatever you can." Something, something to that effect. And I'm not, and it's I don't know Michael Powell that well, besides his films and maybe a few interviews here and there. But that I have trouble believing that, even though Winston Churchill could be kind of a dictator within his own <laughs> universe, that kind of seems like Michael Powell embellishing the story a little bit. Maybe it it could be, but at the same time, this is in the midst of a war. They're trying to, I mean. The other film, you look at the other films that were being made at the time um, in in Britain and in Europe, like a lot of them are these very patriotic war efforts. And Powell and Pressburger themselves made several of them. Yeah, and not just and not just mad, blind, empty propaganda. There are some fantastic films being made. Right, right. Um, I mean, Hitchcock made made several, the foreign correspondent mm-hmm. and, you know, the, things of that sort. But um, there is, you know, there is that speech that Teo gives about um, about not having a country and, and that in combination with sort of blimp sentiment about, he, he kind of comes around to where, um, 
to where Edith was, you know, 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not exactly a rousing, you know, let's go fight the Germans sort of sort of speech either. Exactly. Because looking at it, you know, how what 60, 70 years later, it's very easy for us to say, well, this isn't anti-British and this isn't really hard satire because you and I have grown up and seen really, really hard Mm -hmm. critical films that films that are very, very critical of governments, militaries, etc., so looking at this at the at that point in time and what Britain was going through, I can kind of see I, I'm glad it wasn't stopped, but I can kind of see Churchill's perspective because this isn't rousing, mm-hmm. but it's not a hard capital P pacifist film either. But there there's also you get a really interesting perspective in the fact that uh, Imrich Pressburger, who is, in fact, a what foreign alien is is that what teo is mm-hmm, yes. uh, classified as he himself is a foreign alien he's living in great britain living in london i believe and has a lot of restrictions on him so that speech that he gives when he comes to uh to london in what 41 42 43 whatever it is um is very much you know sort of imrick pressburger's own personal uh experience and that that little you know he gives a speech about him and his wife they lost their sons to the Nazi party and then um, he lost his wife soon after and then he gives the like saddest most just like gut wrenching Heil Hitler you've ever heard and, and just there is a given ironically of course I, absolutely yeah I, absolutely but um, that perspective is something that it's amazing that we were able to get that as well from uh, from a British film. And it, only in the fact that I, gosh, where was he? Austrian, I believe, mm-hmm. um, is, is uh, uh, Imrich Pressburger's descent. So there's there's that as well. As, as it is a very British film, it also has a broader perspective than you would typically get out of a British film, particularly of the time. And so speaking of Britain, you said that this at the start of this podcast that this is a film about the young will eventually grow old, the passage of time. It's all a blink of an eye. How much do you read Colonel Blimp slash Clive Candy as an analogy for Great Britain? For for Great Britain as an empire and as a yes, I, I think you have to say that it's a little prophetic if that's what you're going to to say about because it's uh you know about this guy who is a career military man and really World War II is the last time that you could have a career military man in in Britain in the sense that empires are no longer being made. Um, and and there's even there's a very subtle hint of that in uh, World War One with the South African who um, we assume probably tortures those those German soldiers to get information out of them. Um, who that South African man by all accounts was probably who Candy was fighting back in 1902. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, I I don't know like in in retrospect yeah you're probably absolutely right but I don't know if they knew that they were making that because they were in the middle of of that happening too. Does that? No, and it does. And do you, okay. Part two to that question, because I agree with everything you just said. I I think it is an analogy for Great Britain, but maybe not purposefully. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this film is in any way anti-British or do you think it's very pro-British, but just in a surprising, unexpected way? I would say it's pro-British without being anti-humanity. So it's, it, it puts empathy for humanity above an empire or a nation. I'm, I'm actually not sure I agree with that. I would say that it, it's comparable. I would say it's it's British, both in international perspective, is how I put. It. I, I don't okay. think it puts a universal empathy above uh, kind of a British perspective. I think they kind of walk 
in tandem in this film. Okay, that's a, that's that's a fair assessment. All right, Chris, I know the answer is yes. I was going to say, do you do you have anything else you absolutely <laughs> want to say? Because I have one more point I want to make, but not about the film. But. I I think I'm I think I'm good. As you know, like, I could talk for hours about this. Well, okay, then the last point I want to make is not about the film, but is actually about this show. We kind of implied that this that the name it came about fairly arbitrarily. It's just it sounded cool and you had the URL. And that is indeed how it how it played out. Maybe in a very Pressburger pal way, we didn't know what we were doing. But in the case of art imitating life and life imitating art, I think it's fair to say that you and I, me especially, but probably both of us, we are kind of Colonel Blimps in a way. <laughs> and so we both believe that war should start at midnight as far as just kind of what we're looking for in films Mm -hmm. and yet we encounter film and and in podcasts at that yeah podcast popular culture and films war starts at midnight in our in our humble opinion and we're still trying to in the in the in what we're trying to see what we're like what we're trying to champion is is a certain type of aesthetic and so this is kind of you and i as these old fuddy-duddies just encountering a changing world and uh talking about it yeah i i guess i I would not have made that connection, but uh, you're probably right. Yeah, exactly. You that the the title makes sense is that absolutely you and I are Colonel Blimp. Although uh, if if we're gonna do that, can I be Teo? Yeah, absolutely fine. You can be Teo, or okay. you can even be Edith, and you can be different oh. a different person oh, each time. Man. I might choose Edith. I uh, Edith. Honestly, Edith is probably my favorite character in the entire movie. Uh, aside from those ridiculous hats she has, that's the only like. And then they're having fun with it, but that first hat that she has with the bird on it. Oh man, it's well, a bit much. Okay, then how about you be Teo, but you wear a hat with a bird on your head? That uh, he he wears her hat uh, when they when they depart. So that's true. Good. Well, folks, hopefully you've already watched this film prior to listening to this podcast. But if you haven't already, you know, I'm sure Chris and I could not be any more insistent that you do. You'll just you'll get more out of our show, and you'll love the movie as well. And you'll finally understand why when you email us, you get a message back from our Minister of Communications, Tail Kretschmar Shirtoff. Well, whenever they do watch this movie, Chris, what should they be drinking? Okay, so I thought I've thought long and hard about this, and uh, I'm going to go with something that's inspired by your comment about Colonel Blimp uh, surprising and exciting you. And so my recommendation is Heath Sweat by the Willows Family Ales uh, from right here in Oklahoma. And Heath Sweat is a Goza-style ale. It comes in a bomber. Um, the label looks like a Keith Sweat album cover. And this is a beer that, you know, I, I've i recommended some Gozas in the past, I believe. Um, and I, I like them quite a bit. They're, you know, these sort of fruity, sour beers. Uh, this beer knocked my socks off when I tried it. I, I expected something good. Like, I've had... Uh, I think pretty much everything from from willows and nothing's let me down but this is by far the best that i've had from them and it's just it's a really nice it's not too too sour i know that that's something that a lot of people dislike about about gozas in particular um but it's got a nice it's got a nice bite to it uh it's made with sea salt and coriander as well so it's got it's got a nice you know sort of uh little floral flavor to it as well it's it's a great nice refreshing sour beer Fantastic. Or if you're feeling even more British while watching this picture, I'd say Newcastle Brown Ale or just a spot of tea. Or uh, I I mean, I could go Boddington's, but I don't really like Boddington's. I could go Hofbra because they are, in fact, drinking Hofbra in the uh, in the Munich uh, beer hall scene. So so many options for when you see this. And when yeah. you do, you can find the life and death of Colonel Blimp on a beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray, or if you're feeling really ambitious, I think Chris and I both agree we'd love it if you could find that 90-minute 
black and white version of it. And, and invite and wa- us over to watch it. We'll invite us over to watch it, and then we'll review that later. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for this very special episode of War Starts at Midnight. You can, of course, find us at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, maybe uh, rate us and leave us a nice little review. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. Or if you've just been hate listening through all of these credits, then please tell us everything we got wrong at hello or starts at midnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist or a black narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Join us another fortnight as we discuss the Coen Brothers' newest, a farcical Hollywood comedy, Hail Caesar. Thanks for listening, folks. Cheers, peeps. Cheers, peeps.